Nation. Providing you with the practical tools and expert knowledge to optimize your strength, health, and mindset inside and out. With your host, Steve Katarzy. So guys, it's time for something different today. Let me briefly explain. So as you know, Adaptation is all about helping you be your best. And I'm increasingly concerned by the evolutionary disconnect when it comes to the environment we interact with in today's nutritional norms. Nutrition has a massive impact on whether we thrive or we're diseased. But here's the thing. Nutrition is so political and there absolutely is an environmental impact when it comes to modern day food choices. And leading the charge on the environment and animal suffering side of the house is the ever vocal vegan community and food producers looking to capitalize on that trend. And to the everyday person, I suspect they would assume based on media conditioning that the only solution is globally reducing meat consumption with the holy grail being a vegan diet. But is that true? Do the livestock and meat industries deserve to be saddled with such blame, to be vilified on every level? Well, these are the questions I've been compelled to understand for myself as I encourage my family and our audience from a wellness perspective to lean in on animal-based nutrition to thrive physically, biologically, mentally, and psychologically. And if I'm charged with helping you be your best, but I'm making recommendations that are net negative to the world for you and your kids, then I'm doing a grave injustice. I wouldn't be able to live with myself, nor could I continue my current nutritional advocacy. So to help us unpack the reality of all things livestock and the industries associated to livestock and their planetary impact, I brought on the show a very special guest. His name is Dr. Frank Mitlona, and otherwise known as GHG Guru on Twitter. Frank's main objective is to help establish environmentally benign or even beneficial livestock systems. Frank has a master's in agricultural engineering and animal sciences, as well as a PhD in animal science. He is an environmental and air specialist and a professor at UC Davis, specializing on understanding the environmental impacts of livestock operations. He's a chairman of the FAO hosted partnership projects and Frank has called out some critical emission and nutritional studies that were significantly flawed in their analysis and conclusions, including the FAO Livestock's Long Shadow Report and the recent Eat Lancet Report. He travels the world giving talks. He's published a bunch of papers in the space of air quality and emissions. He truly is someone who knows a ton as it relates to air quality and emissions. It is a true pleasure to be educated by Frank, and I look forward to hearing some of the things we're going to be talking about today, as he is so well-versed on the facts. Welcome, Frank. Hi, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for listening in on that, but I really wanted to set the context as to why we're having a conversation on what isn't a environmental podcast or isn't a pro meat po podcast it's a podcast focused on helping you be your best but i think the environmental impact of our food choices is, is is so profound and yet we're educated with a set of facts that i think are questionable at best and i hope that today you and i can explore that yeah i will do my best 
I've listened to a bunch of your stuff and I've loved the discussion. So I know we're going to be in for a great one. So Frank, if you're up for it, um, I know there's so many things I could ask you. And realistically, there isn't enough time today to cover those. But maybe as an objective, and if you're up for it, I'd love us to cover some some of these things. Can we cover like some of the meat is bad arguments? And let's see what position you have from a scientific and informed perspective. Maybe if you have any, I'd love to get an insight into any UK or EU specific data regarding livestock, livestock operations. Perhaps we can talk about poultry and dairy, because I don't think that really gets spoken about much when it comes to the kind of meat and livestock argument uh, that we hear around cows and beef. Um, maybe we can touch on land use as it relates to agriculture generally. And then lastly, if we can close on what your recommendations are on how we can make a real difference from consumers to governments to farmers and generally how we navigate kind of the fake news and propaganda as a flow, as a theme, Frank, does that feel like something that we could do? Yeah, sure. Awesome. Where do you want to start? I mean, there's so much to cover. Should we should we start with maybe some of the meat is bad messages? And maybe we can start on the, um, I don't know, what about the rising climate and health issues that are due to the increase in the habits of the wealthy? I, we're eating more meat than ever before, because we're earning loads more money. Um, it's a opulence type thing that is suggesting that we're all eating more meat. And as a result, we're being hit with so many health issues and the climate suffering because of those choices. Is that a true statement? Well, I'm looking at the data here for the United States right now. And um, I'm looking at, to be specific, the, uh, the meat consumption from 1909 until, until now. And uh, it's kind of interesting that when you look at the USDA data, the data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, that um, the red meat consumption from 1909 until today has, uh, has, has remained steady. What has increased drastically by 500% is poultry consumption. Um, that's really where the increase has been, um, but it has not been on, on red meat. Uh, at least not over the 100 plus years that I'm quoting. Um, mm. So to be specific, beef has increased by 0.6% over the last 110 years. Total red meat has decreased by 3%. But total meat has increased by 53%. But that's largely a function of increased poultry consumption. So what I also find interesting, and I have data in front of me um, to that effect as well, um, there is data available um, here in the United States on consumption of meat and poultry. And, um, and of course, then there are uh, recommendations uh, within the dietary guidelines of the United States as to how much should be consumed, how much protein should be consumed. The consumption data, um, and now I'm, I'm sorry, I have to give you some U.S. Uh, some U.S. metrics here. Uh, 5.8 ounces is consumed per day, and 5.5 uh, ounces is recommended by the dietary guidelines. So there's not a drastic overconsumption of protein that I can tell. Uh, I hear that being raised frequently, but uh, when you look at the data, for example, the so-called NHANES study from 2007 to 2010, 
comparing recommended intake ranges for protein foods versus the actual um, intake data for males and females. And you will find that there are three groups of uh, people who overconsume uh, protein foods, and that's men in the mid mid ages. Um, but young men, elderly men, and um, and all age groups within the female population are actually at the lower range of uh, of intakes. So I cannot, when looking at the data, I cannot confirm the assertion that we are drastically overeating uh, meat or so. But um, I hear it like you do. Yeah, and we we also hear as well from a health perspective that. Uh, many people, are, you know, if there isn't a, if someone doesn't have a dog in a fight environmentally, you'll quite often hear people cite that people are deficient in adequate dietary protein, uh, and especially so as they get older, and it can cause a whole slew of issues uh, w with regards to bone health and other uh, diseases that may amass. Yet that doesn't seem to correlate that the, the recommendations in terms of our our protein. Uh, optimal protein requirements would suggest we're not eating enough protein, yet uh, there is an argument that we're all eating too much animal-based nutrition, and that is causing greenhouse gas emissions, is causing a number of issues with the planet and loads of suffering. It just doesn't seem to ring true. It doesn't all seem to hang together. Do you have any perspective as it relates to health recommendations on you know protein consumption well i'm not a health professional but uh, what i do know is that there are certain age groups and well population groups in general who are more in need of protein rich foods and that's the young and the old um in particular um with respect to you know health, what I can tell you is that many animal source foods are very rich in uh, in a variety of essential macro and micronutrients. And that does not just include essential amino acids and fatty acids. It also includes things such as calcium and, uh, and iron and vitamin B12 and other B vitamins, uh, vitamins A, D, E, and K and so forth. So, and not just do they contain those those nutrients, those essential nutrients, but oftentimes in ratios that are ideally suited for human consumption. Um, so, for example, if you look at an egg, or if you look at a glass of milk, or if you look at a you know serving of lean beef, then you will find that the nutrients contained therein are oftentimes occurring at a um, at an amount and at a relative ratio um, to one another that's considered a gold standard to compare other nutrients, for example, plant-based plant food groups or food items too. Uh, so, for example, if I want to know how almond juice compares to real milk or how um, rice juice compares to real milk, um, they normally use the animal source food as as the unit that they compare everything else to. And, uh, and the reason is that oftentimes these are the gold standards and um, they're very hard to achieve. 
Yeah, um, the bioavailability of the protein, as well as how much protein is within a given serving, uh, makes getting adequate protein on a pure plant-based diet, I think, a bit more tricky, uh, especially when you combine with some anti-nutrients that may come along for the ride. Do you have a perspective on on cost per uh, per per gram of protein? Is there any studies that acknowledge how expensive it is to produce animal-based protein, whether it be beef, uh, and how that compares with other forms of protein, whether it be soy or uh, yeah, other kind of protein-rich animal, sorry, plant-based foods. Is there any studies that kind of call that out? Um, I don't have any data on this. I'm not uh, an economist and I'm, I'm not well-versed on that. What I can tell you, though, is um, that it's a mistake to compare different food items based on total protein amount. I oftentimes see comparisons of, let's say, uh, a beef burger patty versus a uh, plant-based burger patty. Uh, both of them have, let's say, 20 grams of protein. But in my opinion, that is a poor comparison because the one might be a third or more bioavailable than the other. And so mm -hmm. to me, it's not just important how much protein we ingest. I think that's a very crude measure. But we should measure or we should assess how much of that protein is bioavailable, is digestible to the human body, because that's what matters. Mm. So, I, so I don't have data on, the, on the, uh, the dollar amount or the euro amount per unit of, uh, of protein. But what I can tell you is a protein is not a protein. Yeah, it's not it's not a valid question, right? If if we if we make it more specific, it might be something an economist might be able to review. I'm I'm just curious. I wonder what our because we 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 do hear a lot of information regarding uh, the cheapness um, of producing monocrops, plant based mm -hmm. plant based nutrition versus the expense of animal based nutrition, and that's not just from a cost to the individual, but the total cost of delivering said meat. Uh, or said uh, food stuff, and it's inclusive of all the all the inputs and all the outputs. Uh, I know that's where your special is. So let's let's go back to that. When you spoke about uh, there not being a rise in red meat consumption, what about cattle? Uh, or sorry, yeah, overall global or U.S. cattle numbers have they stayed consistent? Have they grown? Have they shrunk? Do you know anything about that? No, they have not been consistent. Um, they have been fluctuating quite a bit, actually. Um, the height of uh, beef production in the United States was in 1975, when numbers were around 120,000, uh, sorry, 120 million uh, beef cattle. Um, today, there are 100 and, uh, sorry, today, there are 90 million. Um, so 90 million, nine zero. Um, so we have a sizable shrinkage of the beef herd. But what's interesting is that with a smaller herd, we are producing the same amount of beef. Um, so what's interesting is that over the years, let's say the last 50 years, the beef herd has shrunk by at least a quarter, if not more, but um, not at the expense of beef produced, but uh, beef production is, is uh, being held steady. And is that a globally observed phenomenon, or mostly in the U.S.? No, this is uh, this is not global. This is something that we observe in developed countries, such as um, 
European countries, North American countries, where we see herds and flocks, livestock and poultry decreasing, um, but production increasing because of uh, improved efficiencies and so forth. What we see in many developing and emerging countries is the opposite, namely that um, with a rising population with respect to numbers and um, rising demand because of increasing disposable income levels per family, we see increasing demand for animal source food. And that is largely satisfied by increasing livestock herds, livestock herds and poultry flocks. And um, this is a development that's quite disconcerting um, because they could produce the demand, they could satisfy the demand they have um, without increasing their numbers, their livestock numbers, and by just simply becoming more efficient. And uh, that will uh, definitely require us helping each other globally with respect to sharing technology, sharing information. And what I'm not proposing here is that we are now implanting modern U.S. or European agriculture into African countries or so. But what I am recommending is that um, during or as part of the development or developing aid that um, the West provides to developing regions of the world, um, a veterinary sector is, is uh, installed where diseases can be prevented or treated that uh, we assist others in finding out what kind of feedstuff those countries have to offer that could optimize nutrition, that we assist them in reproductive health and so forth. And uh, I think that's really needed because we have many countries where the, the livestock numbers are enormous, um, yet the production levels are dismal. For example, India has 300 million bovines. They have three times or more bovines than the United States, but they produce a tiny share of what the U.S. produces. So that's not really necessary. That herd could shrink drastically without them feeling it with respect to supply side. And what are the main reasons for that? Because um, when you say efficiency, um, one could leap to the uh, argument that efficiency sounds bad. Efficiency sounds like intensive farming practices sounds like factory farming sounds like you know robotic you know um, industry-like processing of animals um people often don't like the sound of that they don't create a good visual in their mind is it mainly that is it intensive practices which are more efficient and also better for the environment or is it is it is it other things that could be done extensively and more humanely uh, and, and more environmentally friendly so I think there is a disconnect with what people perceive as what a farm should look like and what farms actually do look like. Many people still have this 1950, 1960 dairy and beef and poultry operation in their minds when they think of, when they think of farming. And the reason for that is oftentimes that agriculture puts those very images into people's heads images of a red barn in the background and animals grazing in the front and having a good time, often times portraying livestock as something that's more pet-like than livestock. Uh, what I mean by that is that oftentimes in advertisement, um, 
livestock is humanized. Mm. I mean, literally humanized where these animals talk to each other and where they look cute and where they are playful and and so forth. And of course, they are they are creatures with uh, emotions and with you know and so on. But they are not our pets. They are our food. They are not our buddies. They are our food. And um, I keep telling people that, um, of course, it's paramount to provide high welfare to animals, to livestock that uh, are part of our food supply chain. Um, and hopefully the worst day in their life is their last day. And hopefully the rest of their lives is uh, is one where they're kept under humane conditions. However, there are instances where that's not the case. There are instances, and uh, I become aware, like many others do, uh, where welfare is impeded and and not optimal or suboptimal. Um, and in my opinion, where that's the case, one will one will have to really act swiftly and uh, and get rid of bad players. I am the last person who would say, uh, you know, there are, there are no issues. There are issues going on and they need to be addressed and swiftly so but overall overall in my opinion and i've seen hundreds of farms from large to small overall the welfare conditions in animal agriculture are uh, acceptable or good in most cases and where that's not the case one really has to do something about it um now your question around efficiencies whether efficiencies are good or bad well, in my opinion, efficiencies are, are not just good, efficiencies are essential. Without improving efficiencies, we will not be able to address some of the most critical challenges that lay ahead of us in the years to come. And the reason is that we have a drastic increase in the demand for animal source foods in the year to come, in the years to come. And that means that requires us to become more efficient. You know, let me allow me one one analogy that drives it home. People don't really understand efficiencies when it comes to livestock, but they do understand efficiencies when it comes to transportation. Let's say, mm-hmm. for example, for example, uh, if you think back to your parents, your parents' generation, and them driving a car in their whatever twenties, thirties, they drove a car hundred miles uh, from A to B like you do today, but the car they drove was much less fuel efficient than the car you drive today. And so fuel efficient really means that they needed way more gas to get from A to B that had to be burned, and that burning of the gasoline generated emissions. So while they were also able to get the same distance from A to B, they needed way more gasoline to do so, meaning their fuel efficiency today is way better than it used to be. And that's a good thing. It means fewer inputs, i.e. gas, and therefore fewer externalities, such as pollution. The same is true with livestock production. If you can produce uh, the same amount of beef or dairy or poultry with a third smaller flock or herd, then you should. I I agree. Um, the, The sentiment would be that in doing so, that's not necessarily good for the animals. Do you do you concur with that, or do you think that's again misunderstood? I think this is a generalization that won't hold true. Um, so, for example, um, back in 1950 or back in 1960, a dairy 
was a so-called tie stall dairy, okay, where the cow was attached to a beam and she was able to stand up and lie down, and that was it. Um, the milk was, um, was, the cow was milked by stoop labor, so a person leaning down and hand milking that cow, the milk went into a bucket where it stood for whatever, 10, 12 hours, non-refrigerated, uh, with all the food safety concerns associated with it. The manure went into the next creek to be transported off the dairy. The financial uh, situation was, was dire. Um, I don't think that there were better conditions in 1950 in those, in those years that oftentimes are depicted as the glory years of agriculture. In my opinion, those dairies were much less sustainable than the modern dairy is today. When I visit a dairy today, cows are housed in, in large freestyle barns. They can walk around. They can socialize with other cows. They have their own bed that has bedding that is comfortable. And the comfort is extremely important because a cow that's comfortable is a cow that's healthy. And a cow that's healthy is one that uh, provides milk to uh, the dairy and therefore meets the bottom line also financially. Um, when you go visit a modern dairy, I think you'll be hard-pressed to say that it does not meet uh, welfare requirements of those cows. And I would say that most of the other livestock systems uh, fall into the same category. Uh, that is fascinating. And I think you know more dialogue with you and others is needed to open people's minds to the reality of modern practices, even the ones which are quote-unquote factory-led and they're not just randomly grazing on, on pasture all the time exclusively 100% of their life other than slaughter I think we still have a um, a pretty demonized view of any form of kind of industrialized process where they're in a barn and they maybe have technology around them and I think it's, it's a it's a worthy debate to continue opening our eyes but in the interest of leaning in on your specialism Frank let's hit another myth and and, and or at least another assertion that other assertion is there are huge greenhouse gas emissions coming from the livestock industry, especially when you compare it to something you would assume is as dirty or worse, which is travel, transport. Is that true? Well, it is a, um, it is a discussion that becomes technical quickly, okay? I have and to we can go to there. The... <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, let's just say there are uh, two sectors that we should focus on right now. The one is uh, the so-called biogenic greenhouse gases, such as methane from cows and other livestock. And on the other side, and in contrast, there are fossil fuels. So let me, st let me start with the latter, uh, the fossil fuels. So those industries or sectors of societies consuming fossil fuels include things such as transportation, that's cars, trucks, trains, planes, ships, then the energy sector, um, that's power production and use. And then other industries, such as the cement industry. These three sectors alone are responsible for about 80%, 80 80% of greenhouse gases in a country like the United States and in most European countries. So 80% of the, of the greenhouse gases associated with the respective countries are associated with the use of oil, coal, and gas extraction and use. And um, our personal choices, for example, of travel, 
or transportation uh, fall into our greatest contribution to greenhouse gases. So, for example, if I were to go vegan for one year, then and I'm I'm not vegan right now, but if I were to move from omnivore to vegan for one year, then that would reduce my carbon footprint by 0.8 tons of CO2 equivalents, meaning of greenhouse gas equivalents, 0.8 tons. If I were to fly from the US to Europe once, one transatlantic flight would cause 1.6 tons. So twice as much for one flight as going vegan for one year. Wow. So that tells you how important transportation emissions are. Um, again, 80% of what the UK or the US or so emits is associated with the use of fossil fuels in the various sectors of society. What, what does it entail? So this oil, coal, and gas, these fossil fuels were stored in the ground for a very long time, for millions of years. Uh, of course, it's formerly, uh, formerly it was plant material, it fossilized. And then we took it out of the ground, we extracted it, and we burned it. So now that carbon that was in the ground for a long time is in the atmosphere. And every time the sun hits those uh, carbon molecules, they heat up and trap the heat. This is a one-way street from the ground up into the air. Okay, A one-way street. There's nothing cyclical about it. It is some carbon we take from the ground, we put it into the air. Now we talk about livestock and let's say methane as the most prominent livestock-related greenhouse gas. I take you back to high school uh, biology. We all learned that uh, plants need several things to grow. The one is carbon dioxide, CO2 from the atmosphere, and then they also need sunlight, uh, solar energy. And when they have both CO2 and uh, solar light, then these plants can grow. Uh, they take that carbon from the CO2 from the atmosphere and they make it into carbohydrates, such as cellulose, for example, or other sugars. And uh, those carbon molecules in the plant, let's say the cellulose, is sooner or later eaten by an animal in the case of livestock production. So let's say a cow eats that plant material then a part of the carbon that is in the form of carbohydrates in the plants is making it into the stomach of that animal, into the rumen. And then there are microbes in the rumen that are capable of digesting particularly the cellulose. Cellulose is a polysaccharide, a carbohydrate um, similar to starch, but cellulose cannot be digested by monogastric animals such as people or pigs or poultry but it can only be digested by ruminant animals and the reason is that the microbes in the rumen of those cows can break down the cellulose and make it into other chemicals that eventually become milk and meat the methane that's generated in the rumen is an unintended consequence of the rumen's ability to digest cellulose so the cow will produce that methane. And in contrast to CO2, which has a lifespan of a thousand years, methane has a lifespan of only 10 years. So the cow belches out the methane and her manure produces some methane. And that methane will be in the atmosphere for a total of 10 years. After which, 
that methane becomes CO2. And the amount of CO2, the amount of carbon that's now put out or that's coming out as, as part of that methane conversion is equal to the amount of carbon that goes back into plants and then back into animals and back into the atmosphere. This is a cyclical situation where you have carbon coming from the air, going into the plants, going into the ruminant animal, and they produce methane, which is converted into CO2 again, so now it's in the atmosphere. This is a cycle. If you do not, and this is really important now, and this is what people misunderstand, if you do not add additional animals to your regional or national herd, if your herds remain stable, then you're not adding additional methane to the atmosphere. You're not adding additional carbon to the atmosphere. And if you're not adding additional carbon to the atmosphere, you're not adding additional warming. This is some work that has been very well described by Dr. Kane from Oxford University and her colleagues who feel, and I totally agree, that methane is currently not characterized appropriately, particularly when being compared to the impacts of fossil fuel-related greenhouse gases. What I just described is really important because it shows why fossil fuel-related greenhouse gases are so different from those related to livestock. Fossil fuel-related greenhouse gases are a one-way street from the ground into the air, and those from livestock are circular. If you don't add additional animals to your herd, they remain stable, and thus they don't add additional carbon to the atmosphere and therefore no additional warming. And that makes it a big difference. So quick question on that. That is fascinating, by the way, Frank. Um, so methane is is cyclical in nature, going through the conversion of the cycle of life through ruminant animals. Uh, if you keep your herd stable, we shouldn't be increasing warming. Um, that's why I heard. Um, is there like a half, I, I guess there's a half-life difference between um, fossil fuel emissions and methane as well. So from the CO2 produced from fossil fuel emissions, do they, do they, you say it's one-way street, do they stay in the air forever and cause a permanent warming effect? Yeah, so um, when people compare the greenhouse gases, they normally only compare them by their so-called global warming potential. And the global warming potential for CO2 is 1, the one for methane is 28, the one for nitrous oxide is almost 300. Oh, wow. And that's where most people stop the discussion. But the, the CO2, even though it has the lowest global warming potential, has a lifespan of a thousand years. So any time that you have ever put CO2 out in the air, that CO2 is, is still in the air. But the methane, even though it's more potent as a greenhouse gas, only has a lifespan of 10 years. So now I'm not saying that methane is not a problem. It is a problem. It actually is a big problem. But if you keep methane constant, and this is the the most important part here, if you keep it constant, then you're not adding additional warming because methane is a so-called flow gas, and that means it's generated at a certain amount and it's destroyed at almost the same amount. And the destruction of methane occurs through a process called hydroxyoxidation. And that means that there are molecules in the air called hydroxyradicals that steal one hydrogen away from the methane. So from CH4, which is methane, you then have a conversion into CO2. 
So if you keep your herbs constant, you're not adding additional carbon, you're not adding additional warming. But if you add livestock numbers, then you add methane, and then that's a disaster. We don't want that. On the other hand, if you improve efficiencies, for example, and therefore have lower methane emissions, then this lowering of methane will actually counteract global warming. It leads to a process called global, or that leads to a process called um, cooling. Okay, so now you have a cooling effect counteracting the warming effect that we normally see. And the reason is when you take methane out of the atmosphere, you allow more sun, sun energy, solar energy to escape our, our troposphere and go back into space. Mm -hmm. And is, is methane exclusively produced through livestock? No, it's not. There are numerous processes producing methane. Uh, within the food production area, it's, uh, it's livestock, but it's also, let's say, rice production. Anytime you, you do something anaerobic, oxygen-deprived, you produce methane. Um, but it's also, in particular, um, particularly, um, the activities around fossil fuel extraction that, that have recently led to an increase in methane emissions. So in the United States, for example, fracking has drastically increased the, es the, uh, the escape of natural gas, and that natural gas, by and large, is methane. And that's a big problem. Uh, and it's probably the number one source of that gas in our atmosphere now. And here, the situation is different from the biogenic methane generation from livestock, because if you have methane escaping from, from fossil fuel extraction, then that's that one-way street again, from the ground to the atmosphere, not back. So methane is not methane is not methane. You have to consider the source. The only reason why it's cyclical in the livestock arena is because um, what the animals belch out and what's produced and you know what's getting into CO two is the same amount mathematically that's back going back into plants and then back into animals and so forth. But that's not the case with the methane that's coming out of the ground. Okay, okay, and you would you would hear some uh, vegan argumentation that would suggest um, yes. Uh, CO2 because there's there's much more of it and produced in in large quantities through fossil fuels that is a problem of course but methane is something we can deal with like right here right now because of its short life in the atmosphere uh, people could make a material change through their choices now uh, versus kind of shrugging your shoulders and saying hey fossil fuel based uh, emissions just last forever. Uh, I, I kind of understand the point to some degree, but uh, I don't know if I've, I've, I've stated it clearly enough, but do you agree with that, that sentiment regarding the focus on methane reduction versus CO2 emission reduction? Well, it's not one or the other. It's, it's all of the above. Uh, we have to come to a point where we get to net zero um, emissions of the so-called long-lived climate pollutants such as CO2 and nitrous oxide. And I think we are making progress in that direction. Um, fortunately, we don't have to have net zero emissions for short-lived climate pollutants such as methane. But for those, we have to, we have to get to a uh, stabilization. 
uh, because the stabilization means we are stopping the warming trend. Uh, and that's simply because the amount produced equals the amount consumed or destroyed. So we need to do both. We need to ramp down those long-lived climate pollutants, such as CO2 and nitrous oxide, and we need to at least hold steady short-lived climate pollutants, such as methane, uh, in order for us to reach, for example, the, the Paris Climate Accord. Okay, okay. And in regards to livestock production, um, you talk about methane as in you know, the biogenic effect of uh, grazers. Is there, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing there is a fossil fuel component uh, in, uh, when you look at the operation of livestock. How significant is that when we look at a, a, a typical, relatively efficient practice? So the fossil fuel component is largely around uh, the production of synthetic fertilizers. Um, so obviously, the livestock sector is large and multifaceted. So, if you let's say have, so let's let's just look at the U.S. beef system for a second. Um, here, the vast majority of beef animals, um, or all beef animals, are on pasture for at least two thirds of their lives. Uh, except for the grass-finished ones, which are on pasture for their entire lives. So during this pasture part of their lifespan, there's very little fossil fuel input, very little fossil fuel input, because the animals are simply on pasture, and they're doing their thing, they're eating the grass that's out there, and they're largely independent of fossil fuel inputs. Um, the majority of beef cattle here uh, ends up uh, spending the last four months of their life in feedlots. And in feedlots, they do eat uh, a concentrate-rich diet consisting of 80 or 90% concentrates such as corn. When that corn is produced, fossil, uh, fossil fuel-derived uh, synthetic fertilizers are used. Uh, and that's, that's true for most um, all food that we consume. Um, for any kind of crop production, you either have to have organic fertilizers or chemical fertilizers, and they're used half-half. So half of all crops in the U.S. or in the U.K. are fertilized with organic fertilizers, the other half with, with uh, synthetic fertilizers. And all the synthetic fertilizers are high in energy inputs, and that means high in fossil fuel consumption. Um, the organic fertilizers, the 50% of those, that's all manure, animal manure. So uh, you're asking me about fossil fuel input of livestock. I would say the majority of fossil fuel um, inputs into the livestock sector is through feed production and here in particular, the fertilizer inputs. Okay. And then, of course, we have a, we have a, a factory with electricity and then we have distribution uh, of, of, of the products across the country, potentially even further. So I guess that's, a, that's um, some, some emission too. Yeah, if you look at the life cycle emissions, let's say, of beef or dairy or poultry or so, the majority of the life cycle environmental footprint occurs uh, on the farm, on the farm. So either on the farm that produces the feed and or on the farm where the livestock resides. Um, the processing centers, the distribution centers, the transport from A to B to C to D, uh, they all have an impact, but it's dwarfed compared to the emissions that occur on the farm itself. 
Great. Thank you for clarifying that, Frank. That's uh, it's helping me rest easy and understand that kind of distribution a bit more. So then if we try and answer that question uh, once again after what was an absolutely essential um, bit of education. So if we look at the emissions of livestock in comparison to travel, and maybe if we state that um, that cited um, FAO long shadow livestock survey and report, that was suggesting a fairly significant component of our emissions was coming from um, animal agriculture. And I think I think it said it dwarfed or it was com comparative to travel emissions. Yeah, not quite. Um, so this report, by the way, it's now uh, you know, way over 10 years old, said that livestock produces more than transportation not travel, transportation Understood. Um, okay. globally, globally, and that's very important, okay? So since then, follow-up reports have been written by the same authors clarifying um, the matter, namely the transportation and the livestock sector were not assessed using the same methodologies. The livestock side was assessed using a systematic methodology called a life cycle assessment, whereas the transportation sector was only assessed using direct emissions, meaning tailpipe emissions. What that means is on the livestock side, they looked and looked at everything from, from fertilizers and uh, herbicides and everything that goes into plants, to the plants themselves, to the feed, to the animals, uh, direct and indirect emissions of animals, the transportation of goods from the farm to a distribution center, a processing center, eventually to the restaurant or the kitchen where you uh, prepare the food and finally eat it. So that's a life cycle of, let's say, a pound of beef or a, a gallon of milk or a carton of eggs. But on the, the transportation side, the same assessment was not done. So they didn't look into how to produce cars, trucks, trains, trains, ships, all the steel, rubber, and so on that goes into that. Um, the transportation uh, corridors like roads and railway tracks and harbors, all of that, that was not taken into consideration, but only tailpipe emissions. So since then, follow-up reports were written, and um, it's very clear that you should not compare the livestock sector to the transportation sector, for once, because we don't really have the numbers the life cycle numbers for transportation we only have it for livestock uh, but secondly because the nature of the emissions is very different as i described earlier you should not compare uh, biogenic methane let's say for reasons that i described earlier mm. with fossil fuel derived greenhouse gases that are as i said um, not cyclical but um, one-way street in in how they are produced so what does the understanding that there's some this is somewhat crude to ask this question but if we were to estimate overall greenhouse gas emissions from animal agriculture and can contrast it with the emissions that we know come from transportation or travel like what what are those numbers so we can put it in context based on what we do understand today so in the United United States, the numbers are for transportation 28%, and for all of livestock 3.9%. That's a big difference. Uh, in in uh, in in the UK, those numbers would be very similar. 
Um, so transportation here is 28%. Uh, power production and use is another 28%. Um, industries such as cement industry are 22%. So these three combined are already 80% of all greenhouse gases. Um, livestock in the United States is 3.9%, almost 4%, um, of which half, approximately half, is from, from beef. Um, and these numbers, all of these numbers, are the official inventory numbers by the Environmental Protection Agency of the United States. I find it fascinating that that number contrasts heavily with the numbers that um, you're likely to find wherever coming to you through social media or through media outlets or even upon your own inquisition on Google, you, you, you will find a variety of numbers, but they're usually higher than what you've just said. And the balance between the, the detrimental impact between you know, leading our, our modern lives through transportation and so forth compared to eating meat is always skewed in favor of meat being vilified. Why is it so difficult to correct bad information um, like for example that study i know that study is still cited and still referenced uh, whether it be in social media through non-controlled outlets or even through documentaries it's still cited uh, have you got any idea on like how how to correct you know how to address that and get into the populace some real facts as it relates to the environmental impacts of our our future uh, our, our life choices generally well you know we um we all have our filters. And um, what I mean by that is we all have our biases. And there are people who are looking for high numbers, and you will find high numbers. There are, there's, there's a small group um, that's, that's saying that livestock produces 51% of all greenhouse gases globally. Mm -hmm. And they arrive at that number by, uh, by using some very dubious um, methodologies that are rejected by the entire scientific community. Uh, but uh, that number has made it into several, into several outlets that are widely shared on social media. Uh, for example, Cowspiracy. Um, then there are others who use this old 18% number from Livestock Long Shadow. Um, and I think these people understand that these are global numbers, but they still use the numbers to sway people in their country from abandoning animal source foods. So they say livestock produces 18% of greenhouse gases, uh, so we should stop eating animal source foods. What they, I think, know is that this is a global number. In the UK, it's certainly not 18%. It's also not the correct global number, 145 in the UK, but it is something at the order of around 4%. But that number just doesn't sound convincing enough to get people to stop uh, consuming animal-based foods. So um, we all have our biases and we all have our agendas, I guess, and uh, some more than others. Um, and the people who try to uh, make society stop eating animal source foods just use the highest number they can find. So sometimes these are astronomical. The reason why I have a beef with this, and let me be very clear about that, the reason why I have a beef with this is because it distracts us from addressing those issues that are most pressing in lowering the climate impacts of, of humankind. By telling people they should just simply change what they eat 
and that will do the job. We stop making them think about the stuff that really, really matters because it has the major impact. And that's why I have a problem with them. What people eat is totally up to them. I don't care if somebody is a vegan or a carnivore. Uh, you know, to me, it is as much of a personal decision as as their religious beliefs is or their um, their private lives in general. Um, but you know, telling society that what we eat is all that matters and everything else pales in comparison is uh, irresponsible. I agree. I think I think it is completely inappropriate misdirection. Uh, in part because it's it's an easy discussion. In part because we know that there is immediate impact or immediate change an individual can make with their food choices, but that really should be focused around nutrition. Uh, I, I think personally, and if we focus on nutrition, we arrive again at different conclusions to what we hear daily through uh, you know the kind of feed of social media. But let's get to one other kind of kind of meat is bad point uh, before we move on, move on, which is the animal feed itself. Now, you spoke about corn being a large contingent of what US-based cows are fed. Um, I'm not sure if that is true to be said in the UK, or maybe you can comment. But if that is the case, then it's it's a combination of corn and soy that is we're, we're feeding our, our cattle. An argument would be that one, there's a lot of emissions and a lot of uh, environmental impacts with those crops being uh, created purely for the consumption of livestock to feed meat eaters and then a second argument to that would be there's there's that could be repurposed for animal uh, for human based food and i'd love if you have any thoughts on that like one is that the fact are we producing 70% or something like that of our crops purely to feed our cattle and two is that is that are those crops suitable for human consumption so, so there is a great difference between uh, various reason, regions throughout the world. So, for example, I start here with the United States. Uh, the two main corn-producing states in the United States are Iowa and Nebraska. In both of these states, the vast majority of the corn grown there goes to ethanol and is a fuel meaning we, we grow that corn to make it into fuel and burn it in our gas tanks. And the numbers are almost 50%. Almost half of all corn grown here goes into gas tanks and is burnt. About 10-15% of the corn grown here goes into high fructose corn syrup, um, a sugary additive that we put into all different kinds of food items, which is also believed to be one of the causes of obesity here in this country. Um, but this is a sizable amount. About 20% uh, goes into uh, pork and poultry, and 5% goes into beef and dairy. So that's here in the United States. Beef, and, beef in the United States also consumes a byproduct of the corn ethanol fuel production uh, because when they make this fuel ethanol um, a, a, a product is produced called um, distillers grains and so this byproduct of corn ethanol production is also being fed to let's say feedlot cattle because it's still nutritious but it's five percent of direct corn 
going into beef and, and dairy in the United States. In the United States, we do not feed any sizable amount of soy to cattle, but soy is fed instead to poultry and pork. In Britain, um, I don't know the exact numbers, but what I can tell you is that you're feeding a lot of soy to uh, to your livestock, particularly the mono, monogastric animals. And um, I do believe a lot of that soy comes from overseas, it's transatlantic. Um, and that's where a lot of the concern comes from. Because um, you import a lot, I believe, from Brazil and other countries in South America that do uh, have externalities that are quite uh, quite large. So um, what I can tell you overall, and uh, there are publications on this, um, from the FAO in Rome, for example, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, uh, globally, livestock feeds on approximately 85%, 85% non-human edible feedstuff. That's globally. 85% of all feed going into livestock is non-human edible. Because it's either uh, that they eat co-products and byproducts, such as um, you know distillers grains or cotton seeds or almond hulls or uh, also, or they eat uh, feedstuffs such as grass and legumes that are also not human edible. So the amount of human edible feed that goes into livestock globally is relatively low. In our countries, it is uh, much higher. In the, developed, in the developed countries, it's much higher. Um, uh, here, it's about you know 30% or so, maybe 40%. Um, but it is the price we pay to eat animal source foods because that's uh, a group of uh, food items that people are keen of eating. And uh, in order to produce them efficiently, some human edible food will, or feed will be needed. Okay. Okay. So do you do you think this has been um, this has been blown out of proportion in regards to the uh, crops that feed our livestock systems? And I know you 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 specialize on livestock and specifically you know cattle, beef. Um, but as you've rightly said, you know the chicken industry, the poultry industry has grown massively, both in its consumption and 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 production. Um, Mm -hmm. and then between uh, poultry and pork there's a lot of soy-based consumption and then I, I typically hear that the arguments around you know um, livestock feed is really around soy so I wasn't I wasn't quite sure exactly how much soy is fed into cat the, the you know the cattle uh, and and beef industry but you hear a lot about a lot of soy produced for uh, Animal consumption that we then later uh, use as, as food is 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 that is that exactly true? Is is there a big problem with soy? Um, do you know any any stats around that? So first of all, um, there's a big difference between ruminant animals and monogastric animals. Ruminant animals such as cattle and sheep and goats can eat a lot of byproducts, co-products, and um, feeds of very low nutritional quality um, in, and, and make high quality animal source foods from it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's because of their microbial composition in the room and allowing them to do so. 
Monogastric animals cannot do that. So pigs and poultry need um, feed stuff that's that oftentimes is human edible in nature, such as corn and soy. So most of the criticism, I think, goes into the monogastric uh, direction. But that being said, while it's true that monogastric animals eat more human um, human edible feed, they are also very efficient in converting that into protein. So um, pigs and poultry need a relatively small amount of human edible feed to convert that into uh, animal source food. Uh, and so they are making up for the fact that they eat more of that human edible stuff uh, by being by being very efficient. Whilst we're on the, the kind of poultry side, um, I don't really hear much narrative about poultry. Like when 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 I you know I'm trying to not I'm trying to not be biased myself. I'm I'm of course an advocate of animal based nutrition. I see all its benefits to me. I hear things from you and others suggesting that we can do things in a sustainable and even a environmentally positive way when it comes to cattle. But I don't really hear much narrative around poultry. Um, I hear like, you know, KFC, you know, buying like, you know, having to buy like a billion birds a year or something ridiculous like that, you know, to, you know, to fuel their operation. And these numbers sound astronomical. And there is, I think, a bias towards eating a lot of poultry, especially in the UK with the whole low fat agenda. So I see a lot of chicken, a lot of chicken everywhere. But I don't really hear the narrative saying, hey, like, you know, we've been we've been vilified inappropriately we've been demonized we've got really clean operations we don't produce any emissions like the welfare standards are really tight i don't hear that is that because it isn't as good and there's more work to be done or we've just not been having the conversation you know i'm not i'm not sure about it uh, you're right i don't hear that either i hear when people critique the poultry industry it's more for welfare reasons um, but not so much for environmental quality reasons. And that is at least not on the on the greenhouse gas side. It certainly has to do with uh, poultry, of course, not being ruminants, but monogastric animals, so they produce much less methane. Um, but of course, their manure does produce methane. So it's mm -hmm. not that they don't produce any methane. Um, in fact, they do, um, but it's more related to their, to their manure as opposed to... Um, the belching of, of ruminant animals. Um, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. This is, um, I think, a common theme globally that uh, those who are critical with animal agriculture have fold, focused in on on beef and dairy, particularly beef. Mm, so, do you have do you have any opinion versus scientific data or, or strong evidence? Do you have any opinion around how you would characterize? The poultry industry and and do you think either one production needs to lower do you think two you know welfare standards need to improve and three do you think we could be smarter and more efficient around what we feed and and you know the, the impact it has uh, just again your opinion versus you know scientific facts you know these are really loaded questions and difficult <laughs> to answer and, and 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 the reason is that uh it's not just a question of people always think, well, a farmer just needs to change what that farmer does and everything will be good. But, but it's not that easy. Um, uh, we are all part of how we produce how we produce food. Well, why am I saying that? I'm saying that because when you and I go into the supermarket, 
or your listeners. When we all go into the supermarket, we make food buying decisions. We find one product that is cheaper than the other product. And what do we do? We normally go for the cheaper product. Um, and that sets a signal to the producers. So uh, think about it this way. To grow one pig from piglet to slaughter takes 171 days. So about half a year, one pig, half a year. In good times, the farmer gets six and in bad times, four dollars profit from that pig, from the entire pig. Really? Between four to six dollars per pig. If you were a broiler producer, you would make 10 cents in profit from the sale of one broiler. 10 cents. And if you were a dairy producer, you would find that your milk would be sold at a cheaper price in most supermarkets than the equal amount of water. So, and if you don't believe me, go to the supermarket and see, and just take a look, and see what a food dollar pays the actual farmer. So these are the signals that we as society send to producers. And now the producers, the farmers, they need to make do with what they get. And that, in most cases, is pretty dismal. If you look at what a farmer makes, uh, whether it's here in the United States or what's in Britain or elsewhere, it is a shameful amount, one that is oftentimes not enough, particularly not enough for those farmers who are small in size. We live now in a time where many of the small producers are getting out of business simply because they can no longer produce uh, in an economic way. And uh, we have a real situation of the survival of the fittest right now. I give you a quick uh, statistics here for the United States, but the same is true throughout the world, or at least throughout developed countries. In the United States, according to the latest agricultural census, we have a total of 2 million farms. So 2 million farms. Of the 2 million farms, 1.5 million farms produce a total of 3% of all food consumed in the United States. Now I say that again. We have 2 million total farms. One and a half of the 2 million produce a total of 3% of all food. Wow. So meaning the vast majority of farmers in the United States are hobby farmers. Okay, They are very small and they could not sustain a family with their income. They live of less, or their their farm income is less than twenty thousand dollars a year, meaning it does not support family. A staggering eighty thousand farms in the United States, eight zero eighty thousand farms produces two thirds of all food consumed in the United States today. Eighty thousand farms produce two thirds of all food, and these eighty thousand farmers, on average, are age sixty meaning close to retirement. This is a reality, okay? And I don't care what you eat and what your political views are and so on. These are just facts of life that we live in. And we are all part of that with and because of the food buying decisions that we make day to day. And I feel quite... Um, I'm quite worried about that. I have to really tell you because this is our food supply chain that now rests on the on the shoulders of a very small group of people. 
And the more societal pressures there are, the more of the small ones go away and the more integrated everything will become. And uh, people have to make decisions whether they like this or not. I, I am troubled by I'm troubled by this and I don't like to see the the one and a half million getting out of business, but I think uh, that will that will likely happen if everything else stays stays the same. Yeah, Frank, we've got this, uh, you know, romanticized notion of organic farms where, you know, animals are just, you know, roaming freely, you know, from the chicken to, you know, the, uh, the cows to maybe the, the pork so to the pigs. And we think, you know, that's both more sustainable, it's better for the environment, it's better for the soil. And, you know, it's better for us as humans in terms of feed uh, as food. And I, I tend to agree with that. That kind of romantic view seems seems like a possibility. Yet, if there's no money in that, that that's yeah. not going to flourish. No, you're right. I mean, it's uh, at the end of the day, the food growing business is just that it is a business. OK, they're not doing this because they are nice people and they want to protect the, the ecosystem and so on. Their number one reason for running that business is just that, running a business. And uh, most of them try to do this in a responsible way and as good as they can, but they also need to meet their bottom line. And that's what many consumers overlook. I mean, in my opinion, um, farmers should get a sizable chunk of the food dollar, a sizable chunk, yeah. one that really makes them live a comfortable life one where they don't have to worry about you know where do i get uh, the resource to sustain my my family but this is what they're really struggling with and in a bad way and i think that that speaks to local market local farm markets and you know having a more direct relationship with consumers because that's the only way you're going to retain more of your margin as soon as you start selling to big massive supermarkets um yeah most of the money is going to go to the supermarket and that's what you know we talk about here at Adap nation is you know trying to drive a local seasonal fresh you know dialogue um thinking about how you invest your dollars to support and as you say send the signal to the market but it's hard right it's it's not it's not convenient um it it requires more work um, it's going to be more expensive for the individuals, at least in the short run. But then you hear you hear examples like Joe Salatin um, uh, in the US, who's is running an organic farm, yet his production is incredible. His efficiency is great, and he's found a way to do that by holistic management. I understand of the land and you know that the animals are living on there. Do you have anything to say around that style of? Uh, you know, livestock production and how maybe that could be the future to try and deal with the, the quandary that we're talking about right now? Well, there are all different kinds of groups, holistic and regenerative and others. And uh, I think some of them are more credible than others. But I think what they all have in common is that they really uh, worry about, for example, the soil. And uh, knowing that the soil is really the base of all agricultural production and soil health and soil quality is degenerating fast. So I applaud them for uh, attempting to build new soil through better practices. Um, at the same time, I know that these, these kind of fringe uh, groups are not really operating at the scale that really makes a difference um, overall 
um, I think what we really need to get to is that the big, the big ones, the ones that I mentioned earlier, that they really have to get a grip around how important it is to treat the soil that they are in control of in a responsible way, in a way that does not just uh, get one harvest after the other, but also that uh, allows the soil to recover and um, and and rejuvenate, so to say. Um, it's actually very important because otherwise we will not have very many more harvests. So what happens on the small scale with those uh, groups that you talked about, that's important and because it builds an awareness what can be done um but i don't see that there will be like a major sector that really makes a big difference yeah it's uh it's, it doesn't make for great listening when when you hear that our uh you know sustaining our, our requirements from a nutritional perspective uh don't have any you know romantic and <laughs> beautiful pictures but in actual fact it's about driving great greater efficiency greater welfare standards into the already big farms that's probably the only thing and the only option that we have other than well let me gone yeah no, please no i'm sorry i sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you uh, but i just wanted to make clear that one thing's for sure if anybody here thinks that crop production is uh is the holy grail and is so much better for the environment and so on uh you you have uh, modern crop production is uh as efficient as they can be these days okay there are uh machines and uh inputs uh that are that are required in order to get the yields out that we that we demand as society um there's nothing romantic there's nothing romantic about agriculture. Agriculture is as romantic as as medicine. What I find interesting, and you know, I want to I want to bring this up to you is people have this really interesting, um, almost schizophrenic um, perception of what's good for them and when they want technology and progress and when not. For example, I teach a class here in Davis. 300 undergraduate students and uh, we oftentimes talk about technology use and chemicals and how much we want and what we want and what we don't want and so on so i ask them if you wake up in the morning what do you do uh, let's say when you wake up in the morning you have a headache what do you do and of course they say pop a pill if you want to prevent pregnancy what do you do you know you pop a different pill well if your father has a heart attack, what do you, you know, you're obviously pleased that there's such a thing as a defibrillator and a pacemaker that can be implanted into your father to keep him alive. So the use of technology, the use of chemicals, the use of medication is highly appreciated when it comes to human health. And I think we would all agree on that. But the same people who are so accepting of technology, and in this case also of chemistry, of medication and so forth, the same people when it comes to their food choices say, oh, I only want to eat natural. I don't want any herbicides and whatever residues. Be, be there, you know, be uh, even at, at lowest amounts, I don't want any of that in my body. And it's very interesting to me how the same person who says it on the one side uh, is so accepting, on the other side is so rejecting. Yeah, yeah, I, I I can see that in my own life as well. Um, 
I've, I've come to the impression, at least through my listening uh, of the discussion of the nutritional value and the kind of down potential downside of, you know, bee production is actually conventional bee production is is safe, like in terms of, you know, the hormones being present in the foods is is negligible. There's actually regulations to prevent that from happening when antibiotics are given, and that's not always just to help them grow, but that's usually from a veterinary perspective. There's a you know calling off period before they're allowed to you know be slaughtered. So again, there's many regulations that we don't hear about that prevent you know right. the so-called negative aspects of conventional production uh, landing on our plate. And then when I kind of hear about you know both the taste benefits of corn-fed and hear about the price point because we all want as you say cheaper meat. Um, there's a lot going for conventional and I don't think it is as I don't think it's appropriate to be as vilified as it has both in terms of hormones antibiotics care welfare you know the fact that they're cooped in a factory for their whole life which we know is not true um, we just need to break free of that but then the counter is we also need to acknowledge the impact of plant agriculture and um, whilst I don't want to have like a you know kind of a deeper debate on that uh, maybe we can just touch on some of the kind of realities of plant-based agriculture. I mean, plant-based agriculture as a as a percentage percentage of land use. Do you have any stats in terms of how much of the world or how much of the usable agriculture um, land is used for plant-based agriculture versus animal agriculture? And maybe just some stats to help kind of put this in perspective. So globally. Um... Globally, 70% of all agricultural land is what we refer to as marginal. Marginal means that you cannot really grow crops there by and large. Marginal means uh, also that either the soil quality is not sufficient or there's not enough water to grow crops. So 70% of all agricultural land is marginal and the way that it's used by and large is with ruminant livestock. So cattle, sheep, goats globally make use of that marginal land because they are capable of eating cellulose-rich feed. 30%, mm -hmm. 30% of all agricultural land globally is what we call arable. And arable means that the soil is good enough and you have enough water to grow crops of all kinds. Uh, a percentage of that arable land is used for human food production directly. And another percentage of that is also used for livestock. So dependent upon uh, where you live in the world, uh, more or less of that arable land is used for livestock. Um, in many developing countries, the majority of livestock is really produced on the marginal land. And in developed countries, uh, that marginal land is still used for livestock, but also a, uh, a sizable chunk of the arable land, about 40% of that. To grow livestock feed. So um, without livestock, we would not be able to make use of 70% of all agricultural land. Um, and there's another, um, another side story to that. Um, the arable land, of course, needs to, needs to be fertilized. You need to have fertilizer in order to grow crops. And half of the world's fertilizers are chemical fertilizers, also referred to as synthetic fertilizers. The other half are organic fertilizers, and they almost without exception come out of some animal's butt. In other words, they are animal manure. So without animal agriculture, we would not have the fertilizers we have currently, 
to fertilize half of all cropland in the world, but we would have to replace that organic fertilizer, that animal manure, with more synthetic fertilizers. And these synthetic fertilizers have a large environmental footprint. They demand a lot of fossil fuel input, and um, and they're quite energy intensive to being produced. And I just think, Frank, I, I live in the UK, and um, yeah, we have, of course, lots of urban areas. But um, as you drive through from one place to the next, you are greeted by just you know greenery everywhere it's beautiful uh we get a lot of we get a lot of rain <laughs> if you don't know yeah so we get a oh, lot of rain and we get a little bit of sunshine here and there so i think it's um it's limited in like you know the diversity of you know kind of monocrops we can create but we produce loads of wheat uh loads of barley loads of kind of um seed seed oil based um land i see lots of roaming cows and and you know sheep that seem pretty pretty happy with life if i'm honest when i'm driving um but most of it at least in the areas that i drive most of which seems to be arable land i don't know whether the percentages here in the uk are different um but what is stark and a little bit concerning is that it's it's just one plant for as long as you can see you know just rolling fields of exactly the same color and you know, there's a diversity impact. There's you know diversity on both plants, diversity of animals. Of course, there's pesticides, there's herbicides, and then of course you've got the regenerating or the depleting of the soil through the ongoing harvests and tilling. And I don't think people really hear about that. They, they think this land is forever for forever given, and you know we should just continue using using it for its current purpose. But I live on a farm myself. I don't farm, but I live on a farm. And he has to rotate. He, he brings in piles of manure. It stinks. <laughs> and he has to rotate his fields with, with animals because he understands, and I think he's responsible to ensure that the, the ground keeps giving. But if we just keep driving, you know, monocrop, industrial-sized um, uh, um, field production, we, we eventually won't have good enough soil to continue that. I mean, I know we're not trying, you're not a soil expert. Do you have anything to say as, as from an environmental impact of just assuming this arable land is going to keep giving and how we need to think about being more regenerative? Well, first of all, even in the UK, the majority of your agricultural land is also marginal. If you think of all the all the fields where 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 sheep graze and so on and cattle graze, uh, it's a sizable a sizable area within the UK, uh, particularly in the northern part. Uh, but um, with respect to the arable land, uh, we really have to think uh, carefully about not just how we produce uh, good yields uh, that satisfy the demands, nutritional demands, but also how do we um, restore soil health. Because you can't just take, you can't just take from the soil. You have to give back. And uh, if you just take, after a while, your soil will uh, will become depleted in nutrients and in structure. And that is something that we have to actively work against. And so there are different agronomical agronomic uh, uh, procedures and strategies as to how to minimize these unwanted effects. And I'm not a specialist in this, but I know that. Uh, Globally, we are not paying good enough uh, care of our soils, and we and we must do so. And part of that is the the, the manure aspect. I mean, is manure alone alone enough to continue a plot of land to continue giving the no. same crop, or is there more that needs to be done? 
No, manure alone is not enough. Uh, manure is a fertilizer. Um, by the way, a fertilizer that that contains nutrients that are pretty much in the right ratio that most crops need. So what comes uh, from those animals, the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and so on, other nutrients, is excreted uh, in ratios that most crops find ideal. So that's really good. But you also need to build soil carbon, and you need soil structure and, and so forth. And for that uh, addition of manure alone is not enough. You also have to have some, uh, maybe some cover crops or some rotation with uh, legumes or so. Uh, and then just uh, really think about how much you till that land um, versus whether you also allow that land to rest from time to time and so forth. So again, I'm not a agronomist in the classical sense. And so uh, you would have other experts that could give you much better advice. But what I can tell you is uh, going for the same crop year in, year out is not a good idea. Yeah, no, and and uh, thank you for being generous with your time and also your answers because I have asked you questions that are outside of your specialism. Uh, but I appreciate the back and forth, and I and I respect and trust your your input. So, is there anything else on the environmental side, the things that you're focusing on, or the things that I haven't asked you that you wish I would have, that would help um, further paint the picture for people as it relates to? you know, livestock emissions or generally food choice emissions? Well, I think that um, livestock, particularly ruminant livestock, have a very important role to play. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because I find it a beautiful thing that there are animals such as cattle who can take something that's non-human edible, such as grass, and again, that's a vast amount of the land that we have available, and they, they upcycle, not just do they recycle, they upcycle from low feed in, inputs to very high quality uh, product outputs. So it is a upcycling of nutrients from something we cannot eat to something that becomes a product that is highly digestible, highly bioavailable, and highly desirable to us. And this whole system is largely solar powered mm -hmm. and because it is part of the photosynthesis system uh, of plants growing, uh, you know, powered by the sun, uh, then being eaten, and then and then those animals produce those products that we so so cherish. So to me, this is a beautiful process, and um, and one that receives uh, a lot of criticism that I find is is not really substantiated. Um, but I understand people have different opinions, and they are entitled to it. But you know, I just wanted to say that I think that uh, that the animal agricultural um, realm receives criticism that's oftentimes uh, exaggerated, in my opinion. I agree. I think it is an absolutely beautiful system, and and a system that you know we haven't just stumbled across recently. <laughs> this has been this has been right. the way of life that uh, has enabled us to flourish as a species from from day dot. It really has large ruminant animals have been part of our nutrition and part of our evolution forever. And this solar panel powered life that we have today hasn't changed yet. Our expectations um, and our appreciation and our trust of it has changed. And maybe that is in large, largely due to industrial scale food production. And I think large, la largely 
big big food is our biggest culprit and that doesn't get enough airtime just what needs to go into producing processed food between all the foods you would never find in your kitchen all the additives and you know the compounds through to you know their plants their processes you know there's there's a lot of inputs and a lot of external outputs that could con that do contribute all that processed food that we see that make up the majority of the supermarket is not the food we've been talking about for the last hour and a half uh, yeah, it doesn't seem to be either demonized. It does from a health perspective, but doesn't seem to be demonized in terms of the the waste, landfill waste, the you know the the um, plastic waste, um, and all. The, and then of course the emissions that those that industry creates from your ice cream to your baked goods through to you know the frozen goods and packaging. And maybe that would be my last question, Frank. There's a massive uptick. Um, and I think mostly through the benefits of making money, this this movement around creating vegan products. And we're not talking about creating more vegetables. We're talking about creating more processed food that mimics meat largely. Um, and one, I don't get it from a decision standpoint, but we're not we're not here to debate that in terms of personal choice. It's more around how this has been stated to be like our savior our savior for nutrition, our savior for the planet, our savior for the animals. And I've wondered if you have any thoughts on that. And I'm, I'm talking specifically fake meat industry, beyond meat, impossible burger, lab meat, like where that whole piece is going around giving us alternatives to our beef and our chicken. Well, there's quite a hype around this. Okay. And, uh, and I understand that, that there's a sector of of society that uh, that is vegan in the in the UK, it's about one point two percent of the total population according to the uh, Vegan Society of the UK. So it's a relatively small group, and I don't think that that is the group that's driving this trend. Um, I think most vegans don't really care about meat, and they don't want to eat something that tastes like meat and uh, resembles that meat. I'm not sure who is buying that stuff right now, but obviously there is a market for it. When I look at it, um, I hear that they say that this is healthier for you and this is more nutritious and this is better for the environment and so forth. Um, I have to say when I look at the ingredients um, of, let's say, a beef patty versus the, the Beyond Meat and the Impossible and other patties, uh, then I see one, which is the original, which has one ingredient, beef, mm -hmm. and the other ones that have 21, 22 ingredients. Uh, and recently, I compared that uh, those ingredients to the ingredients of dog food and uh, you know basically dog kibbles, and I put it on my Twitter account. GHG Guru is my Twitter account, and I asked uh, whether people would know which of the three items and the ingredients from those three items is which. I pretty much asked them which of the three ingredient items is dog food. And of 130,000 people who looked at it, the majority got it wrong, meaning they were not able to differentiate between the dog food versus those uh, burger alternatives. Wow. And to me, that's quite to me that's quite uh, disconcerting because uh, I I know what to look for and I know what it is that they have in their in their products, and even I had a hard time finding out uh, which item is which. So. I would not eat it myself. I would not feed it to my family. 
Um, but if people feel they need this for whatever reason, you know, uh, be happy with it. Uh, do, you, currently, do, you, do you anticipate environmentally it will be better for us than uh, just rearing rearing cows? Well, in general terms, um, if you add a trophic level like animals, then you will increase the environmental footprint. So livestock agriculture will always have a higher environmental footprint than us going with plant-based foods directly. But, so, and, and that's true, there's no doubt about that. So the environmental footprint of animal source food will always be higher than the environmental footprint of plant-based diets. But when people go into the supermarket and make real-world buying decisions, then what are these based on? Are these based on carbon footprint? Are these based on those kind of things? Or, or what are they? And in in the vast majority of cases, um, people make food buying decisions based on um, taste, price, nutrition, and brand. 95% uh, of all people do. And there's a relatively small group that makes food buying decisions based on how green is how green is that stuff that I'm buying. I mean, meaning how environmentally impactful. Um, but for the majority, that is not the main food buying decision um, aspect. And um, to me, as a scientist working in and around livestock, the question is not uh, which food is the greenest or so, because to the vast majority of people, that is not what, what drives their decision. But to me, the most important question is, how can we satisfy what people actually want, what they demand, in a way that is least harmful? And here's how I can, through research, support farmers in making the greenest decisions in growing food, uh, food that's raised in a responsible way, in a way that does not deplete natural resources beyond uh, the inevitable. And so um, I think we have made great strides, and uh, I think the public uh, should know that uh, the farmers try very hard to produce food in the most responsible way they know of. Uh, they also need to know the the consumers need to know that they are part of, that they carry part of the responsibility as to how we produce food. Because if they are willing to pay only the, the lowest amount of, 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 of money on uh, their food choices, then that drives signals to those producing them. I, I completely get everything you've just said there, Frank. Um, but you said something there that potentially has changed my worldview a little. And I just want to make sure I'm clear on that. You're saying um, the likes of buying a Impossible Burger or a Beyond Meat or something that has uh, you know, many different ingredients created in a factory, you, that is still of less environmental impact than you know, buying an um, ethically and appropriately reared animal uh, food product. Because I was, I was not of the impression that was the case. When I, when I just think about when I think about factory and inputs and process and synthetic and fossil fuel production in these factories producing these these fake foods, I would have assumed it wasn't that. Have I got my understanding of the situation wrong? And if so, I think it's worth clarifying so I can explain that to our audience too. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, you, you do have that wrong. Uh, if you compare a, a plant-based burger versus a beef burger, the plant-based burger will have lower, they, it will have a lower carbon footprint. It will also have a lower uh, footprint on other environmental uh, avenues. Um, and the reason is that the majority of that environmental footprint um, stems from enteric emissions and manure-derived emissions. 
uh, which the plant-based obviously does not have. So, um, yes, it's true that these ultra-processed burgers uh, contain 21, 22 ingredients, and they stem from bull crop production, uh, quite intensive agriculture, sometimes with GMO, sometimes without GMO. Uh, but overall, the environmental footprint is lower than that of the real thing. But then what you add in is the methane piece, which is cyclical. Um, and then when you, when you equate for that, does that change things? Uh, that would change things, yes. Um, and we don't know to what extent it will change things because um, that indeed is, of course, a very important consideration. But we don't know yet at this point by how much it will, it will change uh, the relative importance uh, of one versus the other. I appreciate your honesty on that, Frank. And I appreciate you, you preventing me from you know, sharing my own fake news. Not with any ill intent, but it's, it's easy when you get um, bought into a concept to you know, want to promote it, even if you haven't got exact information. You assume you've got the right information. And I think, generally speaking, people that are trying to promote nutritional changes and interventions, they're, usually I think they mean well, especially if they're individuals, but they might not be educated. And I think this conversation helps... Uh, go a long way in understanding the nuance of our choices as it relates to our planet. Is there any final words of recommendation you'll give before we close? So anything for our our consumers that you believe that they can make the biggest difference, both um, to their navigation of fake news and propaganda, but more importantly, how they can support better practices? Like, What do they need to do? What do I need to do today uh, through what I spend my money on and the choices I make to send the right signal? So I first think that um, those people who toot all these advantages and disadvantages the loudest are by and large overemphasizing differences across different food items. Food items do have an impact on the environment, but that impact dwarfs compared to other uh, decisions of, of our daily lives. Uh, Personal decisions that decisions you make day to day as to whether you drive to work or take a bike or whether you eat X, Y, or Z, they have an impact, but that impact is very small compared to some of the more systemic um, decisions that it is that, that a society makes. For example, you know, do we do we uh, have coal-fired power plants or do we have nuclear power plants or do we have um, alternative energy sources. That really has a massive impact on the carbon footprint of a country. But even if a whole country goes, let's say, Meatless Monday or something like that, you have a reduction of the carbon footprint of 0.3%. 0.3%. If an entire country goes vegan, you have a reduction of 2%. So these are, yes, these are reductions, but they dwarf compared to uh, those activities in life that uh, require fossil fuels. So my overall recommendation is um, when you go food shopping, think about what is wholesome, think about what you put in your body and what is what is good for your health and what you enjoy. And, uh, and don't forget, I mean, food is something that we want to enjoy, something that is very important to us. Don't make it a struggle, but make it a joy and... Uh, and support the farmers that do it because they deserve it. They are the ones putting that food on your table every day. 
And uh, if we make their lives miserable, then they might decide, you know what, I have enough, I'm getting out of here. And then we all have to think about where our food comes from in the future. Beautifully said, Frank. That makes perfect sense. Thank you for that last word. Where can people find you? We've already said that you're on GHG Guru on Twitter. I, I follow you there. You put some good content out. You retweet some great content too. Is there any other means for people to engage with you or follow your work? Or I don't know if you do talks or presentations, if you travel the world, maybe if there's anything else that we should be aware of outside of the Twitter account. Yeah, I do. I do uh, give frequent talks throughout the world. And, um, um, you know, normally on Twitter is where I announce where I'm going. Um, I'm, of course, on, uh, available here. I'm in the Department of Animal Science at UC Davis. And uh, I'm available via email. And you can easily get that by just uh, Googling my last name. And then you'll find my contact. And so if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact me and I'm, I'm happy to entertain any questions you might have. You're a star. Keep up the fantastic work, Frank. Thank you so much for your gracious time today. I've learned a ton and I hope we can keep in touch. And yeah, if you, you learn something radical or something big that we need to hear, I'm sure I'm going to see on Twitter and I can't wait to continue following your journey. Very well. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good one. You too, Frank. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. If you enjoy this show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might also enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. This is Adapt Nation.